Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series from canvas to screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never demand payment over the phone or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Stay informed on the latest scam and fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us wherever you're listening in Southern California. I so appreciate you taking time to join us. So many options from radio to podcast to listening to music as you drive around. You're here because you want to know what's happening in Southern California and around the world. We have a jam-packed program, and we begin today without a guest. It's a chance for listeners to weigh in on a proposal that was just announced yesterday by San Francisco Bay State Senator Scott Weiner. And he has put forward a package of bills designed to make um, car travel and truck travel safer, particularly for pedestrians and for bicycle riders. This, as we have seen, deaths mount in the wake of, of the end of the pandemic. And one of the proposals in the package is that starting with the 2027 model year, all cars that are sold or manufactured in California would have to have what are called speed governors on them. That, in other words, is a technology that caps the maximum speed that the car can be driven at 10 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. The technology would likely employ GPS, just like navigation systems, to know what the speed limit is any place on the road or on the surface street. There also could be cameras that would be employed that would read speed signs and use those as a way of determining what the speed limit is and then setting the limiter on the car at 10 miles an hour above that posted speed. My question for you is, do you think that that would be a good idea? My understanding is that in the EU, there are at least some countries where it's required that there be a warning if you're driving more than a certain number of kilometers per hour over the posted speed limit. And it's not a governor, so it doesn't actually stop the car from going faster than that, but it will warn you, and and apparently it's mandated that there's technology in the cars that alert you to the fact that you are now going, and I don't know what the limit is, but X kilometers uh, per um, per kilometer uh, more than what is uh, recommended as the maximum speed. So I'd like to hear from you what you think. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Is this something you would find desirable to purchase and drive a car that has an automatic speed limiter of 10 miles over the posted speed limit. 
10 miles an hour, 866-893-5722. Now, there is language in the bill which says that uh, there would be an opportunity to temporarily defeat the governor, but it doesn't explain what the, the criteria, what the circumstances would be. I assume that that uh, the state senator is leaving that to be um, further clarified in the text of the bill. But there is that out that uh, a driver could could temporarily uh, defeat it. Now, emergency vehicles would, of course, be exempt from this, um, but this would apply to passenger vehicles in California if it's passed and signed into law. One concern I would have about this, uh, I had the actual circumstance a number of years ago when I was driving home uh, on the uh, 134 freeway leaving the studios of uh, LAist. And I was driving westbound. I was driving over the Arroyo, the bridge there on the 134. And a driver who I saw in my rearview mirror was passing everybody, driving erratically, speeding. I, I can only get, you know, over 90 miles an hour on the 134. And traffic was light enough to do that. Uh, uh, clipped a car when he was trying to, to go past it. And it sent him into a 360 spin. But he was going so fast that as he's spinning across multiple lanes of the freeway, moving westbound in the spin, he was catching up to me. I was probably going 70. But even at 70, I could see in my rearview mirror, this guy was catching up to me in the spin. And he was going to hit me from behind as his car was spinning. And I, I can only you know, convey that my pulse rate was, you know, going, going uh, sky high. So I floored my car uh, to escape being hit from behind by the spinning vehicle at the speed that that car was spinning. And I narrowly avoided being rear-ended by the car that was going at such tremendous speed. Had I not had the ability to go more than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, um, I can only imagine the the injuries that I would have suffered in a case like that. So I think there are safety concerns for drivers about their ability to avoid someone at a high rate of speed who is coming at them and with a governor, the limited ability to avoid that collision. But I'd like to hear what you think about this. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. I don't know if there'd been, an, you know, if I had a governor on my car and if there was a way of defeating it, whether it's something I could have instantaneously enacted to save myself, if in the moment I would have thought to do that if I needed to save myself, if that was the technology that I was dealing with. Um, I think all, these are all things that we need to consider. We're at 866-893-5722. Let's talk with Malcolm in Redondo Beach. Good to have you with us. Malcolm, what do you think about a mandatory st uh, speed governor on cars that would be set at 10 miles over the posted limit? I have a similar concern to you. In my opinion, during an emergency situation such as, I don't know, an accident in front of you, you need to be able to accelerate suddenly in order to avoid danger, in order to avoid crashing into something. You sometimes need to go faster than the speed limit just to get out of the way of whatever might cause you harm. So I think something that artificially 
limit to your speed could be very dangerous to you and to the people around you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Malcolm, I appreciate it very much. I mean, it seems like kind of a blunt instrument. Obviously, speeding is a problem, but this would affect everybody, regardless of, of people's driving habits. Uh, but I'd like I'd love to hear from listeners, particularly if you're someone who supports this, I'd be really interested in hearing the reasons why, what, you know, as you weigh the pros and cons. 866-893-5722. James in Encino says, I'm in favor of a of a speed limiter of 10 miles an hour over the posted limit as long as we can disable it in case we need to. That's James and Encino. Matt in Eagle Rock says we need better driving habits taught, not putting restrictions on vehicles. 866-893-5722. Henry in Rancho Palos Verdes, your thoughts on this proposal from Senator Weiner. Yeah, I'm, I'm always uh, hesitant and very cautious whenever the government comes up with a new strategy to extract money from the public. Um, I don't believe that speeding is the cause of uh, a lot of accidents. It's the drivers that are that are um, not good at driving. And I, I'm not in favor of this control. It's just another grab to uh, get more money to the government and to lose more of our freedom. Uh, as is, every time there's uh, a catastrophe or a virus, we tend to lose more of our freedom. This is just another way to control us. And right. I don't like it. Henry, I appreciate your call. That's Henry and Rancho Palace Verdes. Now, advocates for a policy like this say that about a third of the fatal uh, collisions, uh, whether they involve pedestrians, cyclists, or people in other vehicles, involve speeding. So about a third of them. So their contention is if people were going slower, even if they were driving poorly or distracted or or driving aggressively or carelessly, that the damage that they do would be less if their speed was controlled. 866-893-5722. Let's talk with Diana in Brentwood. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Larry. So my experience recently was that I was almost a victim of being carjacked. I was at an intersection and going through a residential neighborhood and had to accelerate not close to a police station. There was no point of safety, and I had to accelerate and weave my way through the neighborhoods to get to a point of safety. And if there was a governor on my car, I shudder to think what would have happened, but it was an extremely frightening situation. Boy, I can only imagine, Diana. That's terrible. Uh, thank goodness you were, you sound like you were able to evade the person. Thank goodness. Right. Yes, absolutely. And Go I ahead. cannot understand how he would try to put something in place that applies only to California vehicles um, when obviously people from other states come in here and drive. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why he would just restrict it to California. I think the intent, and this is similar with pollution control devices, is that if California did this because of, of it being such a massive car sales market, that then it would force other states to do the same thing. 
But then the question is, you know, if you live in in rural Montana, for example, and you have to go, you know, a two-hour drive to the supermarket at the speed limit, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you go 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, you considerably cut your time, you're probably not going to be happy if if you have a car with a governor that keeps you at 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. So, yeah, uh, one size fits all. And, of course, there are rural areas of California as well uh, who I'm sure would not be happy about this. 866-893-5722. Nick in Venice says, I think this is the stupidest thing in the world. We have a driver problem, not a speed problem. In Europe, it's harder to get a driver's license, and they have so many fewer accidents. Uh, Let's see. We have... um, Ryan and Santa Ana, I'm in support, but what about old vehicles? Seems unfair, but I do agree speed is a problem. Yeah, this would not require the retrofitting of older vehicles because you can imagine the cost of a car that's not GPS connected, that you would have to connect with GPS um, and install a technology like this, and there may be unintended consequences that would create further issues with an older car. So that's not part of this bill. It would only apply to vehicles uh, beginning with the 2027 model year that are either sold in California or constructed within California. Um, But this does raise the issue about the um, variance in speeds that you would have because you could have older vehicles that people might hold on to longer so they don't have to have a car with a speed governor on it. They're going to be out there, let's say, doing, you know, uh, 80 miles an hour in a 65 post on a 65 freeway. And um, and then you're going to have someone who's held to, um, you know, a, sl- a slower speed by, say, five miles an hour. They're going to have to, the challenge is going to be navigating, getting out of the way, dealing with the whole rhythm of driving, because you're going to have two different sets of of cars and what they're capable of doing on the roads at the same time. So, you know, maybe these are, we invited Senator Weiner to join us. Maybe these are all things he's looked at and he's talked with experts and he could tell us the answer to all of these issues. But, um, I mean, just at a, a, a brief glance, I just found out about this this morning, one can think of a number of challenges with um, implementation of this. Uh, let's talk with Spencer in Echo Park. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hey there. Um, you know, you think, like, Americans aren't exceptional in that we are guaranteed peace forever. So a car that decides when to stop, that's always connected to the Internet and is always, like, filming, sounds terrible to me. Like, what about a fascist takeover? What about a national natural disaster? What about wartime? It seems like a very dangerous thing. All right. You don't like the idea of, of having the car connected like that. Who would have access to that information? Spencer, I appreciate it very much. 866-893-5722. Let me throw out another issue that has not been raised yet. One of the things that the state of California is attempting to do is encourage uh, people to purchase all electric or other zero emission vehicles. The idea being that that's part of the climate solution and that California should lead the way. If this was passed and signed into law, there would be a certain subset of drivers in California who might otherwise consider buying 
coming up in future years, a 2027 or later model vehicle, but would instead hold on to their older, non-speed governed vehicle because they don't want to have a governor on their car. So would that end up unintentionally delaying the turnover of the passenger car fleet because, you know, people would be continuing to drive gasoline-powered vehicles instead of going to zero-emission um, uh, automobiles because they don't want to have a governor on their car. Again, another seemingly, to me, unintended potential negative consequences. Let's talk with um, Mike in Atwater Village. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hi. Uh, my feeling, besides this incredible government overreach, is it's going to drive car sales out of the state. People are going to go to Arizona. They're going to go to Utah. They're going to go to uh, Nevada and buy cars and bring them in. And unless they make that illegal, and that's going to cause a ruckus, um, it's going to really be difficult for car dealers in this state. Besides a, besides a, a boom in the year prior, where they'll be selling like hotcakes, uh, it's going to squelch. It's going to squelch business, and it, it's just a foolish idea. That all they want to do is control you more and more and more. We keep losing our liberties uh, gradually, and this is really unnecessary. And as you mentioned, dangerous. And then the ability for these things to be hacked. And uh, when you're in these towns with artificially low speed limits, it's um, all, you know, it, it goes against the all the uh, wisdom of traffic engineering. Uh, so you're Mike. not going to get Wiener to tell you that uh, he's looked at any expert uh, opinions because they'll be contrary to that. Okay, I don't, I don't know, Mike, but but hopefully we can have him on in the future and and address some of these concerns that are being raised. Charlie in Rancho Mirage says my concern is the technology. Oftentimes, the speed limit information isn't accurate, and you need accurate data. Charlie, I'm glad you raised that because. I noticed this, and I presume um, some of you do as well. When you're driving using uh, a satellite navigation system, it'll often display what the speed limit is. And it is often er uh, inaccurate, I find, particularly if there has been construction where they lowered the speed limit and then the construction is done and they've reestablished what, what the typical speed limit is for that stretch of the road. and But it hasn't flipped over on the sat-nav system, it's still showing what the old speed limit was when construction was going on. So, Charlie, you're absolutely right. It You cannot count on the satellite information necessarily being correct. And one of the things they mentioned, using cameras on the vehicle to read the, the speed limit on the sign, but... Is it going to be able to differentiate between the truck speed limit and the passenger vehicle speed limit? Or might you accidentally have the car reading the truck limit and then that's operative uh, for the governor? Um, so many, so many questions. Um, let me share some comments. Adam in West Hollywood said, I support the bill. I was almost killed in my house when a car was driving 100 miles an hour on our residential street. I was asleep at the time. Drivers really need to be prevented from going at such high speeds. Adam, so sorry to hear about that. That's a terrible circumstance. And yeah, we hear over and over again about, you know, demonstrations of speed, people going through residential areas, hitting pedestrians, hitting parked cars. 
cars even plowing into homes because they're driving so fast. But in the circumstance you're giving, Adam, I would guess, since you say it's a residential street, it was probably a 25-mile-an-hour limit. And if the person's going 100 miles an hour, that's 75 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. That's um, just absolutely uh, absolutely crazy. Um, thank you. There are so many listener comments. This has truly struck a nerve. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. I promise I'm going to read all of them throughout the course of the day because that's how I learn about what the point of view is of our AirTalk listeners. So thank you very, very much. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on this bill, which I'm sure this is not the last time we will talk about it. It's AirTalk on LAS 89.3. Coming up, we continue our series of interviews with candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Joining us will be former assistant U.S. attorney in the Central California office, Jeff Chemerinsky. He'll join us in just one minute. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never request payment over the phone, mention specific bill amounts, demand to enter your home, or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Verify communications by calling customer service directly or viewing the latest fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. It's uh, such a, a privilege to be able to talk with all the candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. I, I hope you're finding them of value as you decide who you're going to vote for in the upcoming March primary. Joining us today is Jeff Chemerinsky, and if that last name is familiar to you, he is the son of frequent AirTalk guest, a man who's been with me for decades on, on the program, Erwin Chemerinsky, who's the dean of Berkeley Law. Jeff Chemerinsky uh, was in the U.S. Attorney's Office Office for the Central District, which takes in much of Central and Southern California. He was a prosecutor on federal cases. He left the office to run for L.A. County D.A. Jeff Chemerinsky, welcome to Air Talk. Thank you so much, and it's great to be here. So uh, let's talk about your experience. What would you be bringing from the U.S. Attorney's Office if you were elected L.A. County D.A.? I spent the last nine and a half years as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Los Angeles. I worked on pretty much every type of violent crime case there is and worked with pretty much every law enforcement agency in Southern California. I'm proud of my record as a federal prosecutor. Most recently, I was chief of the violence and organized crime section for the U.S. Attorney's Office, overseeing all violent crime cases, all organized crime cases, all gang cases for the office. It's an office, as you know, covers a huge geographic scope. Over 19 million people within the offices uh, is covered by the office, and I oversaw all violent crime prosecutions for that population. Um, it was a great job, and I gave it up to run full-time for district attorney. 
I also oversaw the federal robbery program for seven years and really specialized in armed robbery cases and smash and grab robbery cases and uh, worked a lot on those cases over the years. Uh, most of the other candidates who are running is sort of staking out a ground that is more a traditional sort of law enforcement position. Um, you are, I think it's fair to say, running to the left of most of the rest of the field. Nevertheless, you're a critic of the incumbent George Gascon. So are there... Are there differences in his policies or or are the differences that you have with him about the ways in which he's executed the office? I really have criticisms in both regards. Um, as you said, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I do believe strongly in criminal justice reform, <laughs> and I think criminal justice reform needs to be done right, and I don't think he's delivered on that. I think he's there's been a number of missteps both in his policies and in his leadership. So I'll start with leadership. I think to give one really sort of timely example. In today's newspaper, there is a big article about a $5 million settlement that will be paid out from county funds based on a civil rights violation by the DA's office. This goes to, it was, uh, the DA's office filed a lawsuit against an election company, and the lawsuit, or filed a case against the election company based on, and the case was based on right-wing conspiracy theories uh, promoted by Donald Trump. And the case, after a month, uh, was dismissed by the DA's office. But George Gascon, by then, had a press conference touting the charges. And uh, it's really, I think, it's an outrageous example of a real failure by the DA's office, promoting a right-wing conspiracy theory about election uh, manipulation. And the case was, $5 million will now be paid out of taxpayer money. Um, under George Gascon, there's been over 15 lawsuits against him based on his retaliation against his employees and his employment practices. The first of those 15 wills, uh, went to a jury, and a jury awarded $1.5 million in damages that will be paid out of tax money. So I think there are a number of leadership failures. Now, I do believe in criminal justice reform, and I think one problem right now is that he's made criminal justice reform seem really unappealing. And I think the people of Los Angeles have lost confidence in his leadership and his ability to keep us safe. So what criminal justice reform means to me is, first, that we mass incarceration is wrong, that we don't want to warehouse people, that that's simply wrong. And we have to be really careful throughout in the way we go about prosecution to make sure that we don't uh, warehouse people, that we don't that we have really smart policies that really differentiate between people who need uh, long sentences and people who don't, and that our policies aren't simply seeking the longest sentence for every case. So I would differentiate things like I'd be vigorous in prosecuting gun crimes. I think the district attorney of Los Angeles needs to be a leader when it comes to prosecuting gun crimes. And but would you use the enhancements available to prosecute gun crimes? I do think that gun enhancements are speak to the seriousness of those crimes, and I think that they're one of the tools that the DA should be using to really be vigorously prosecuting gun crimes. But on other enhancements, like, say, gang enhancements, I'd be much more reluctant to use those. I think gang enhancements have been abused in the past. And similarly, strike enhancements, I'd be much more reluctant to use those. Now, gang enhancements, interesting, because you've prosecuted organized crime cases. So in what cases might you, if ever, use gang enhancements? And is there anything like with organized crime cases you, that you would see any similarities there? Yeah, so I did a lot of gang cases over the years. I convicted the head of all of MS-13 at trial just last year. The year before that, I convicted the head of the East Coast Crips at trial. Both were RICO murder cases that I was really proud of. I've seen the effects that gangs have on neighborhoods, and I think that they uh, 
I take gang crime seriously. With that said, I think gang enhancements have often been abused and misused in the past. I think they've, uh, before I launched my campaign for district attorney, I went on a really broad listening tour and I spoke to a lot of judges, a lot of lawyers, both on the prosecution and defense side. And what I really over and over again heard was that gang enhancements are often abused and misused and uh, added for everything from leverage to get in inflammatory evidence about gangs so that the jury can hear them uh, and be prejudiced. And so I really would be very reluctant to use things like gang enhancements. But I think smart criminal justice reform policy has to differentiate between things like gun enhancements and gang enhancements. And that's what I would do. George can you, Gascon, hold that? Yeah, can you just hold that thought? I want to reintroduce. We're talking with Jeff Chemerinsky, who's former assistant U.S. attorney. He's candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney, one of the 12 candidates for office, including the incumbent George Gascon, who is seeking re-election. So you're just going to say about George Gascon. Uh, he didn't differentiate between things like gun enhancements and gang enhancements. And I think that's a major mistake. His policies on day one were abrupt and inflexible. And they've, he had to largely repudiate a lot of the reforms that he tried to implement. I think I would be a much more effective reformer than our current district attorney. In large part, he's isolated himself. I think a lot of leaders locally don't want to partner with him because he's seen as such a polarizing figure. And I don't think that needs to be the case. I believe that I can be a reformer as a lifelong Democrat and a prosecutor who can really collaborate with others within the community, within the office, and within law enforcement. And I think that's exactly what we need at this moment. Jeff, let's let's talk about the morale problem within the DA's office, which I think pretty much anyone would see is the case. You'd be coming in from the outside as opposed to many of the other candidates who they're either in the DA's office or dealing with the DA's office from the bench or other positions. You'd be an outsider if you were elected. So how would you deal with... Um, the challenge that that might present to bring, uh, you know, to, to you know, bring things down from the boil that they're at now. Great. Well, first, I would note that I am an experienced prosecutor. I've done cases uh, on the line level. I've done a number of really big criminal trials against really dangerous individuals. Convicted the head of MS-13. I've done a number of robbery and smash and grab trials, and so I really bring that level of expertise with me to the district attorney's office. I was also just recently chief of the violent and organized crime section, so I have a really close relationship with law enforcement leadership throughout the county, and I've worked with them in partnership, um, but that doesn't mean always giving them what they want. It means being a true partner to them, sitting down with them, talking to them, listening to them. I think all that experience sets me apart from our current district attorney, who never once has tried a case, never been a prosecutor. And I, so I think it really makes... Uh, me, given that I was chief of the violence and organized crime section, leading a broad unit of prosecutors, staff, working with law enforcement to set goals and priorities, uh, gives me relevant leadership experience that I think sets me apart in this race. Jeff, so far, the people that we've interviewed in these segments have have all said that when it comes to prosecuting uh, juveniles, they would want the ability, in particularly heinous cases, to be able to petition for the possibility of that juvenile being tried in adult court given the nature of the crime or repeat offense, whatever it would be. Is that something that you would want, or would you have a strict prohibition against juveniles being prosecuted in adult courts? The science on this is really compelling to me. The science is that 
the human brain isn't fully formed until someone is well into their 20s. And my general rule as a result is that juveniles will be treated as juveniles. I think it's borne out by the science, and it's really important, and it's part of my vision of justice. With that said, I do recognize that there, we may be presented with exceptional cases, and we may need to make exceptions as a result of that. I'll have a very careful process to make sure that whatever exceptions we're willing to make are very limited and are subject to the highest levels of review. But I think ultimately what justice requires, I know this is being a federal prosecutor and being a supervisor and leader, justice requires looking at cases and being willing to accept that we may be presented with truly exceptional cases that require exceptions. So what So what do you do if you're presented with a case of a juvenile who has done something truly horrific and you say, well, this young person's brain's not fully developed, may not be fully developed till age 25, and they're years from that. And yet you have a sense that they could still be a threat to the public after being released a short period of time in juvenile custody. What do you do in a case like that? So it will be subject to really rigorous review within my office by a different levels of review to make sure that we get it exactly right. I think that uh, the reality is we may be presented with an exceptional case. We may not be. And, but if we are, we're willing to make exceptions and treat it appropriately. But we'll also be willing to revisit it. And I've dealt with offenders who are uh, younger, and I've made exceptions for them. I've taken into account that they may age out of the area or the age where they are a danger to the community. And uh, the best you can do is really look at the facts of the case and willing be willing to make exceptions. But even in those cases where... You have a juvenile who, say, needs to be treated as an adult. I still would anticipate looking at the juvenile's young age as a mitigating factor at charging, sentencing, pleading at every stage. We're, we're talking with Jeff Chemerinsky, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney, uh, formerly in the U.S. Attorney's Office based in Los Angeles as a prosecutor there. I wanted to ask you about prosecuting officer-involved shootings. Fifteen officers have been prosecuted in the four years of George Gascon's term. That compares to just two officers prosecuted in the previous two decades. What do you think of the cases that the current DA has uh, decided to prosecute? And and do you think his approach is better than his predecessors on this? Yeah. So I think police accountability is really important for the DA's office. I think that it's really important that the police, uh, that from the DA's office, that the DA's office is both a partner to law enforcement and at times is willing to be a check on law enforcement. It's part of the role that the DA's office needs to play and that I'd be prepared to play. The reality is that uh, I come from the U.S. Attorney's Office, which has a strong culture of police accountability and civil rights prosecutions, and I would really prioritize those cases along with others. Now, I think the DA's record here is actually more mixed than what you said. It was the L.A. Times last year that published an article saying that uh, really laying out the mixed record here that said that while he promised on police accountability, in fact, he's underdelivered in certain regards there. I would really make sure that uh, these cases are properly staffed, properly resourced, and that I take civil rights violations really seriously in my district attorney's office. Uh, Let's talk, uh, Jeff, about Prop 47, which reclassified six crimes, reducing them from felonies to misdemeanor. And there's been great controversy about um, the property crimes of under $950, whether it's petty theft or shoplifting or receiving stolen property. Do you support those dollar limits in Prop 47, or would you support modifying that number? So 
Prop 47 increased the felony threshold from $400 to $900. I think that that was a fine change is the reality. About 37 states have thresholds that are even higher than $900, including Texas that has a threshold of $2,500. So I don't think the threshold change was a real problem. Now, with that said, I do think that as DA, what there needs to be consequences, even for misdemeanor offenses, that repeated thefts are really serious. And as DA, I would be serious about having there be consequences for people who repeatedly steal. So just because something's a misdemeanor doesn't mean it has to have no consequences. And that's how I would view the law. The reality is, even if I wanted to change Prop 47, that's not a change the DA could do. The DA has does have tools to prosecute crime and to take it seriously. And that's how I would respond. We're getting tight on time, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, quality of life crimes that the DA's office really isn't prosecuting, but can be uh, something that in neighborhoods are seen to be a significant problem. Would you, if you were elected, um, go back to prosecuting those crimes? I would take a really careful approach to this. I think when I talk to different communities in different areas, I often hear about these quality of life offenses that are really affecting neighborhoods throughout our county. And I take them seriously. I think people need to feel like the law is working. And I think right now so many people in the county feel like the law simply is not working. I think people in the county have lost confidence in our current district attorney to keep them safe. And I think it's really important that the district attorney speak to the needs of the communities. And I do think that quality of life offenses uh, need to have consequences. And that doesn't mean, of course, seeking the longest sentence. That doesn't mean uh, consequence has to be jail time. But I do think that if people violate the law, especially people violate the law repeatedly, there should be consequences. And that can mean diversion, can be drug rehabilitation, it can mean mental health services. But I do believe in uh, consequences, including for quality of life offenses. Jeff, we're up against the clock. Just a very quick, like, 20-second closer, your statement to voters. I would love to have your support. I believe that I am the prosecutor and reformer that our county needs at this moment. I've been endorsed by the League of Conservation Voters, the environmental group, uh, the leading environmental group that's endorsed in this race, by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, by our city attorney, Heidi Feldstein-Soto, by Connie Rice, who's the leading civil rights attorney in our area, by former Congressman Henry Waxman, former Congressman Mel Levine, former Congresswoman Yvonne Burke. I believe I'm the leading Democrat in this race and the best Democrat in this race, and I'd love to have your support. Jeff Chemerinsky, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it very much. Jeff Chemerinsky, former assistant U.S. attorney prosecutor in the Los Angeles office uh, of the attorney's office and candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. We've invited all 12 of the candidates to join us here on Air Talk. When we come back, we remember a director that died last Saturday who's hardly a household name, but you know his movies. He made some great ones, who's one of my favorite directors. We'll talk about Norman Jewison when we come back. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. 
Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never request payment over the phone, mention specific bill amounts, demand to enter your home, or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Verify communications by calling customer service directly or viewing the latest fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. Very memorable song from the film Fiddler on the Roof, directed by Norman Jewison, 1971 film adaptation of the beloved Broadway musical, one of many films that the acclaimed Canadian-born director made in Hollywood. An incredible range of films, too. It's, it's hard to think of a specific Norman Jewison film, although I have to admit, as, as a fan of his work, for me, it's really the social, socially conscious films that stand out most. Let's listen to a clip from 1967's In the Heat of the Night, Best Picture Winner, the story of Philadelphia detective Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, who gets pulled into solving a murder while passing through a racially hostile town in Mississippi. Here, Virgil Tibbs deals with racist sheriff, played by Rod Steiger. Well, when I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harv's left-handed, Chief. But in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Uh, Virgil, that's a funny name for a boy that comes from Philadelphia. What did they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Great performance by those two men uh, and much honored uh, for the film as well, which mentioned was a Best Picture winner. Norman Jewison died at the age of 97 last Saturday, but uh, left behind an incredible filmography. Joining us is the author of Norman Jewison, A Director's Life, professor of literature at the University of Toronto, Ira Wells. Professor Wells, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. He, uh, Jewison had an incredible range of films that he did, because on the one hand, he's got In the Heat of the Night or And Justice for All. On the other, he's got a romantic comedy like Moonstruck. I mean, he's just, he's very versatile. That's right. And I think that's what makes what makes him so special, is that he can do uh, a slapstick comedy like The Russians Are Coming. He can do a hard-hitting social drama like um, A Soldier's Story. He can do... Um, action or science fiction like rollerball he really could seem to do just about anything he contained multitudes and he was not going to be pigeonholed he he really um he was relentlessly driven to try new things and uh let's talk about his training ground because like some other great directors of his era he got a tremendous amount of work in television didn't he and how did live tv help him that's right. So he um, got his start at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, in 1952. Uh, he was in the studio for the first ever live televised broadcast in, in the country's history. Um, it was an upside-down CBC logo, so they were, they were learning by trial by error. 
Um, and he, he did a great deal of, he did just about anything. He did a lot of uh, musical comedy variety. He did a, a puppet show with a sort of cantankerous bald puppet uh, who, who said vaguely inappropriate things. Um, from there he did, uh, he moved on to do musical specials with Harry Belafonte when he went to move to New York. Musical specials with Judy Garland, really worked with some of the greats um, before uh, uh, getting the, the seat as a, um, a director, um, really at the tail end of the, of the studio system at a time when directors really didn't have all that much power, right? They were they were hired guns who were brought in to execute the vision of, of others, but still he was working with Doris Day, working with Harry, uh, with um, Rock Hudson and others uh, in some of those universal comedies in the early 1960s. Um, and then his career really takes off in 1965 when he gets to produce and direct his first, the first property that he himself drove, which was The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Uh, we're talking, uh, which starred, by the way, Carl Reiner, even Marie Saint, a very funny film. I remember seeing it in theaters when I was a kid and enjoying it very much. We're at 866-893-5722. If you have a particular Norman Jewison film that you would like to uh, tout and share why you enjoyed that film so much, 866-893-5722. Let's listen to uh, uh, a selection from Moonstruck, 1987 Best Picture nominee, Cher and Nicolas Cage. In this scene, uh, the two characters spend the night together, and this is what happens after. I'm going to marry him. Do you hear me? Last night never happened, and I'm going to marry him, and you and I are going to take this to our coffins. I can't do that. Why not? I'm in love with you. Of it. I can't. All right, well, then I must never see you again, and the bad blood will just have to stay there between you and Johnny forever. And you won't come to the wedding. I am telling you, you can't come. Cher's character, Loretta, is engaged to uh, Nick Cage's brother in, in the film, and complication ensues. And that, you know, that film was one that was really kind of a sleeper hit, wasn't it, Ira? Was, was, I mean, Cher obviously a star at the time, but that wasn't predicted to be the kind of box office hit it was, was it? No, that's right. I, I, nobody wanted to make that film. Um, and uh, uh, Norman described getting this script that was covered with coffee stains and how it had obviously been passed from hand to hand. And uh, there was not a lot of interest in it. My, my understanding is that Cher wasn't all that keen to do it right off the bat um, and that people really didn't know what they had. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, once it's released, it's, it's up for Oscars. It's a, it, it's a huge hit. Um, and a really telling story there is that I know that Olympia Dukakis uh, was up for best supporting actress uh, with regard to Moonstruck. And um, uh, she went to, to Norman Jewison for some, some counsel and sort of said, you know, I don't, I don't really know what to do. And he said, well, do this interview, speak to this journalist, um, and sort of mapped out for her um, the road to her Oscar, which she then won. Um, and meanwhile, he wouldn't do any of those things himself. He didn't, <laughs> um, he didn't seek the limelight. And she was just shocked that he seemed to know how, you know, this game plan for winning Oscars, but he wasn't interested in, in uh, having that limelight himself. That's that's so funny. I'm glad Olivia Dukakis talked with us. So that was good. <laughs> Let's talk with Pleasant uh, at Wilshire and Highland. You're on Air Talk. What's your favorite Norman Jewison film? Hi, Larry. 
um, my favorite Norman Jewison film is called Only You, and it stars Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei. What is it you love about the film? I love it because it's all about love and destiny and faith. And a lot of the times the road to finding true love is not what we think it will be. But as long as you remain faithful and vigilant and follow your destiny and dreams, you're going to find love. All right, Pleasant. Thanks so much. Ira, your thoughts about Only You? That's a, that's a uh, great pick. It's... Um directed uh well directed by jewison but he he was inspired by his hero was william wyler and he was really inspired by roman holiday um and there's some direct uh homages to uh to roman holiday with gregory peck and audrey hepburn um and i think he was really going for a similar vibe with uh with robert Downey jr um and restatome um great sense of humor great energy it's a beautiful film it might be his most beautiful film to look at in some ways and, and probably another underappreciated gem from norman jewison's career rollerball was a jewison film uh you know uh with raquel welsh um that doesn't seem to fit for me with his other stuff but what's the story on the making of rollerball Right. So Rollerball uh, was based on a short story um, about this this crazy sport that had been invented to um, alleviate, you know, we're into this dystopian future in which corporations are ruling everything. And they come up with this sort of gladiatorial outlet of Rollerball, which is this, you know, uh, very violent sport where people are dying in the in the matches and so on. And uh, I think for for Jewison, he was uh, all of his films proceeded from an idea. He was very committed to the idea of the film. And um, I think he was, uh, in that particular case, he was thinking about the violence in, in sports that for him, from his perspective were be, was becoming too, too prominent, especially in, in hockey growing up as a Canadian. He was seeing um, the fights in the 1970s were getting out of control. He believed that, that sports violence and the sort of commodification of violence was um, was uh, part of our our media culture that uh, that he was criticizing and and critiquing in that film. Let's talk with David in Laurel Canyon. You're on air talk with Ira Wells, author of Norman Jewison: A Director's Life. Good morning. You know, I, when I look at Fiddler Roof, uh, you you think of Zero Marcel and Hersha Bernardi. No one ever heard of Chaim Tapal, and I I went in with low expectations, and then I said, wow. <laughs> I got to say that if you had a non-Jewish actor doing it, it would not be as good. But Chaim Tapal, who I knew, I heard, did it in London. How the heck did Norman Jewison find this guy and reject the two people on Broadway uh, who had done it? Great question, David. Yeah, Ira Wells. Yeah, so Norman felt that um, Zero Mostel might be too theatrical for uh, to have a a camera right in his face doing close-ups. And he was imagining a more naturalistic um, Tevya and saw uh, Haim Topol um, uh, on, uh, in an Israeli production of uh, Fiddler on the Roof and uh, was blown away. Actually, pardon me, I believe it may have been in London, actually, the, the, the Fiddler that he saw Topol in. But regardless, he saw, he saw Topol and he loved the, the more naturalistic approach and, um, and I think there's somewhere where he even jokes and says that he thinks that Topol is a little sexy. 
So he thought that uh, he would make a good uh, a good caveat. I love the story that that he got the directing job of Fiddler because with his name Jewison, people assumed he was Jewish. And and beyond that, you know, he did all these socially conscious films. So it's not um, um, not a surprise that people would just have assumed that he was Jewish, but he wasn't. Exactly. And this is something that I try to get into in the in the biography a little bit, is that, you know, his last name started with the, the letters J.E.W. He was constantly um, taken as a, a Jewish person in Toronto in the 1930s and 40s at a time when Toronto itself was was surprisingly anti-Semitic or maybe not so surprisingly. Um, but but he uh, he identified with a marginalized community that had uh, been on the, the wrong end of oppression. And really did that that sense of identification and that sense of social justice fed into his career um, through through all, all kinds of works. I mean, yeah. um, not only Fiddler, of course, but but uh, in the heat of the night, Soldier Story, Hurricane. Yeah, you know, so many. Social justice was a big part. Yeah, Hurricane uh, telling the story of. Uh... Uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter, the boxer who was wrongly convicted. Thank you so much, Ira Wells, talking about Norman Jewison, who died last Saturday. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So glad to have you with us. You just heard that news from NPR that uh, Peter Navarro, Trump White House official, who was convicted of contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with a congressional investigation on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, has been sentenced today to four months behind bars. He's the second Trump aide convicted of contempt of Congress after former White House advisor Steve Bannon, who also got a four-month sentence, uh, but is free pending appeal. Both men with roots here in Southern California. And Peter Navarro used to be a guest with us quite frequently on Air Talk back when he was a professor of economics at UC Irvine. We used him as a local expert. Peter Navarro many times coming on Air Talk to discuss local economic issues, uh, now being sentenced to four months in jail for contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the investigation into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We're planning to turn our attention to streaming services and particularly to Paramount uh, putting uh, itself up for potential sale and what that might mean for streaming as well as studio consolidation. Paramount, of course, with a very valuable and historic lot right in the heart of Hollywood. In addition to its Paramount Plus streaming service, its uh, CBS network and all the other entities that are a part of of Paramount writ large. Uh, Unfortunately, our expert guest is uh, having some technical challenges with joining us right now. We hope to have him with us just as soon as possible. But in the interim, I would like to hear from you how your streaming habits have shifted over time. How do you budget for streaming? 
Uh, do you time streaming services around particular series that you want to watch and then cancel and wait for something else that's on offer that you're interested in to reinstate your membership to that streaming service? I'd like to hear from you how you manage the costs and the clutter of all the competing streaming services that are out there right now. Which are the ones that are gotta haves? You keep your, your subscription up because you know there's always something you're going to want to watch on that service. And which ones do you churn through based on specific content they're offering at a given period of time? 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I'd like to hear what are the ways that you work with the plethora of streaming services out there to try and make it manageable in your life. And how has that shifted over time? Are you someone with a new streaming service would come out and you saw something you liked? Maybe you would sign up for it right away and found that there just wasn't enough content um, that held your interest to keep that subscription going. As we hear from people in this second hour of AirTalk, it gives us a chance to kind of piece together the different ways that AirTalk listeners are using streaming services, 866-893-5722. And I think one of the ways that streaming is going to be heavily influenced is by live sports making their way to streaming services. You might have seen the huge deal that WWE uh, made with Netflix uh, for their uh, Raw show, the weekly series that's been on um, uh, on television that's going to make its way now to Netflix. The NFL, for the first time in its history, had a playoff game exclusively on a streaming service. It was the wild card game between Kansas City and Miami, and it aired only on Peacock and got huge uh, tune-in, people subscribing to Peacock so that they could see that NFL playoff game. Now, for Comcast Universal, which owns Peacock, the big question is going to be how many people stay with Peacock and keep paying that monthly fee um, with perhaps nothing else that's going to be uh, attracting the person. But I, I suspect there are also a lot of zombie subscriptions to streamers out there. In other words, you sign up for a streaming service because of something you want to see, promptly forget that you gave them your credit card number, and in the meantime, it just keeps racking up the monthly bill. You forget to cancel it, and the streamer's making money regardless of whether you're watching. 866 893 what do you do with streamers? Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. How do I handle it? Well, because of the business that I'm in, talking television every week, I subscribe to just about every streamer and pay for it and, and don't cancel because I need access to all that content. Ed in Inglewood, good to have you with us. How do you manage this? One of you, Larry. Um, well, first thing I did was I, I had to actively choose to sit down, let me filter through everything. What do I use every day and what can I cancel out? Right. And once you, once I did that, uh, the next thing was just, I literally just sent a text, Hey, what streaming services do you guys have? Uh, went out to my friends and, uh, currently I share passwords for three streaming services. That's 
I don't pay anything at all. It's just a courtesy a friend gave me. Yeah. Um, and as a result, I share with uh, with them my YouTube premium. So kind of like a fair trade there. But essentially, anything I'm not watching every single day, I'm cutting out. And and even then, I'm also using streaming services, which um, I think they're legal, but they're free, which is the important part. Yeah. Though, are you talking about the ones with ads? Uh, so they're offered free because they show ads with the content? Uh, I'm talking about specifically with sports. Uh, there's streams online where oh. it'll basically reflect what you see on television yeah. online. Yeah, those are not uh, those are not legal. <laughs> so, yeah, and sometimes my understanding, and I haven't watched games that way, but sometimes they'll come down right in the middle of the of the stream because uh, someone found out that it was there on the platform. We'll, we'll cut it out. But yeah, those are those are not legal those are illegal retransmissions of of the live broadcast but ed thank you so much and you know i think ed you speak for so many people who share passwords to try and keep the cost down and maybe it's not just to family members but close friends as well who are sharing the passwords just like you're doing. Now, Netflix announced, I think it was a couple days ago, but it was this week, that they saw a significant revenue jump because after cracking down on the sharing of Netflix passwords, they have a whole bunch of new subscribers, people who weren't able to use shared passwords anymore to access Netflix content. So for Netflix, they're seeing this as a real boon for their bottom line. I think it's only a matter of time before other streamers adopt a similar kind of crackdown on password sharing, but I'm not aware of them doing it so far. 866-893-5722. One of our AirTalk staffers says, I only keep my Hulu account because they have a huge discount for students. It's a buck ninety-nine a month. I've been out of school for years, but I can still use my student email. Shh. All right, that's one of our AirTalk team members who shall go nameless. 866-893-5722. Chris, in Upland, what's your approach to managing all the streamers and the costs for each? Well, I've had to invest a lot of time to figure it all out. I've been cutting the cord for at least eight years. I've been furious with the cable companies and the increased costs. So I adopted uh, YouTube TV early and seen the rise from about $40, $45 to now $75. But they do give you six uh, different accounts. So I've finally been able to talk the family into splitting everything. So we're at the point where, where we're, we are sharing some of the services, but we've got it worked out so that we've got Max, YouTube TV, uh, everyone has pretty much their own Prime accounts. So we get Prime. Yeah. And then uh, Hulu and Disney have a package. So we've gotten the package. And then when you pay annually, you can get some discounts too. And uh, and then we also have, I, I can't give up Paramount Plus because of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. If you're a Star Trek never fan. never give that up. No, all the series are there. I'm with you. And as someone who was so into Star Trek and still goes back and watches the Next Generation episodes, uh, even original Star Trek, I've seen those episodes countless times, but it's comfort TV. If you're stressed out, you just, you know, want something, you, you almost know the dialogue from beginning to end, but there's the familiarity. Yeah, Paramount Plus with the Star Trek franchise. No question. Chris, thanks so much. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. 
5722. How do you handle streaming services? And, you know, my question is, what's going to happen when all these other services do what Netflix has already done and and they start cracking down on password sharing? Because I think, you know, I, I'm not sure what their business practice is or, or their thought. I'm guessing they didn't mind the password sharing at the beginning because it exposed so many people to the platform who otherwise would have never bought it themselves anyway and wouldn't have been as exposed to the content. So the idea is you get people hooked. They're, they're, they start using it for free because they're using a shared password. Then they realize, oh, I like this series on Peacock, you know, and if, if they can't share a password, maybe I'm going to subscribe to it. Or I, I like this series that, that's on um Hulu or, or whichever the, the platform is. 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. You know, we were going to be talking with our expert guest about Paramount uh, and its majority controlling shareholder essentially, you know, putting the company up for bid. And there have been um, reports in the trade publications of a number of different conversations about um, the potential for acquisition of Paramount. And particularly for a company that has a streaming service that is looking to collaborate, one could really see the advantage of this because, you know, Netflix is the behemoth in this space. It has so many titles. It has spent so hugely on the development of series and Netflix exclusive films that to compete with Netflix um, is is just a huge task. So for a Paramount Plus or or a Peacock or even a Hulu to be able to get that kind of, of critical mass is very, very challenging. But if there are ways of those streamers to um, merge their services, then that could be that could be a really big thing. Jeff in Westwood, good to have you with us. How do you handle the challenge of streaming? You know, I actually used to love the DirecTV packages because they let me get uh, soccer games from all around the world for about 25 bucks. And when the cable cutters came along and were like, we can do this better and cheaper and borrow from our friends, I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. And it has been because what's happened is the the soccer rights for all around the world is now parsed into like 12 different channels and premium packages where you're having to pay more on top of what you already pay for and everything else. And what it got me to do was just watch less soccer. I used to watch 15 to 20 games a week from all around the world. And it's too much of a hassle. Even when you pay for the subscriptions now, keeping track of all your passwords and everything, you find yourself spending the first 15 to 30 minutes of the game, trying to get logged back <laughs> into the whatever you know app it is. And it just came to where it wasn't even worth it. Now I just pay attention to highlights and results and scores. And, and I didn't like to do that. I'd like to watch full games and see how they played out. But basically it's broken me of my soccer habits. Uh, and I've been to three World Cups. Oh, I've been wow. big into yeah. the game. But this, during the pandemic is when I just started watching less because they were trying to charge more for all these games, for players who didn't even have anything to play for half the time. Jeff, it was just an empty stadium. One of, one of the things I was going to say, too, is if you had that direct TV or the cable equivalent package for international soccer, you had the ability with simultaneous games to just flip around immediately from one game to the other. If you're using 
all these different streaming services to watch games, you have to go in and out of of the each different streaming service to get to that individual concurrent game. And there's a tremendous time loss that's involved in that, too. It just it doesn't give you that freedom of jumping from game to game to game. Absolutely. And you could use uh, a dual tutor TiVo and keep it basically tuned to two of the major channels that showed all the games and basically cache them and fast forward and rewind as your day went on on the weekends. It was absolutely amazing. You're absolutely right. Jeff, thank you for the call. I appreciate it so much. That's Jeff in Westwood. Uh, Cecilia in uh, Porter Ranch says, I've canceled most of my streaming services, including Netflix and Prime Video. Now I only use free streaming platforms like Freebie and YouTube. They have ads, but it's more tolerable to me than the price increases that come with so little notice. And Chris in Beverly Hills says, I only uh, subscribe to one streaming service at a time. I'll watch everything on Netflix. Then I'll uh, subscribe to something else, drop Netflix, and that way uh, Chris can keep the costs under control. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with streaming. I appreciate it so much. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3, and I assure you we'll get to that conversation about Paramount uh, being in play for acquisition on a future day coming up. We'll take a look at robotics and the ways that some manufacturers are looking at taking jobs done by humans and automating them. Which industries are most prime for that transformation? What is it going to mean for the cost of the products and for the workers who do that work currently? We'll find out when we're back in just one minute. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never request payment over the phone, mention specific bill amounts, demand to enter your home, or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Verify communications by calling customer service directly or viewing the latest fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. TV Talk coming right up because it's Thursday, of course. Our opportunity to talk with our television critics. We'll even get a report from Sundance on a limited series that debuted there. And speaking of Sundance, Justin Chang, critic for the LA Times, joins us on Film Week tomorrow to talk about uh, some of the best films that he saw in Sundance. That's on Film Week tomorrow morning at 10 here on LAist 89.3. But we turn our attention now uh, to a recent Wall Street Journal piece by Nora Eckert um, that wrote that law uh, automakers are going all in on automation as a way to fight their rising labor costs. This following the deals that were made between um, the uh, auto workers union and the various U.S. automakers. 
But there are tremendous challenges in uh, having those jobs done by robots. But I thought this was a good opportunity talking about what are the types of manufacturing jobs that appear in the not-too-distant future might be done by machines instead of humans. With us, Editor-in-Chief of Automation World, David Greenfield. Automation World reports on industrial automation technologies. David, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So not a surprise that automakers are looking at this, given how much their labor costs have increased. But um, how many other areas of manufacturing do you think we're going to see some significant job loss to robots? Well, you know, it's going to be across multiple industries. You know, automotive has clearly led the way for decades now. Uh, they had the big run-up really in the 80s. Uh, they were one of the initial uh, sectors to uh, employ robots uh, more than any other. But we're seeing it increasingly across, especially most recently in the consumer packaged goods industry, which is food and beverage pharmaceuticals and, you know, cosmetics, uh, what have you, that is a growing area uh, that is increasingly becoming automated more so than it has been in the past. But I think one of the ways to characterize this is, yes, you know, you know, inevitably with any advance in technology, be it robots or other types of automation, you will see some job losses associated with that. But a lot of the reshoring that's been happening in the U.S. with manufacturing, where a lot of jobs have been lost, particularly in the 90s, uh, automation is actually allowing a lot of those jobs to come back uh, because automation has enabled the reshoring of a lot of manufacturing operations that had been lost in the past couple of decades here in the U.S. So it's not quite a zero-sum uh, equation, if you will, to say the more automation there is, the less jobs there are, because uh, it's actually helping bring jobs back. And it's also creating a new field of work uh, for uh, across industry for people to maintain and uh, fix uh, the robots and other types of automated equipment across mm. industries. Well, I was also wondering, even though there may not be as many people working at a factory, for example, if you're talking about this, uh, these these jobs coming back that had earlier been offshored, um, if part of it is that they can do it with fewer people, they might be paying them more than they would be paid in another part of the world, but because of the robotics, it, it makes it affordable and then they don't have to deal with the same shipping costs. Is that what you're talking about in part? That That is a huge part of it, yes. Uh, because, I mean, it's, you know, it's no secret that, you know, labor costs here in the U.S. are high, um, you know, they, you know, are than, than they have been historically in other parts of the world. But even in the past, probably more than a decade now, um, even in areas like China where labor has historically been cheap, especially when compared to the United States, they were even increasingly applying robots and other types of automated equipment. You know, in one aspect of it, you know, there is the labor cost, but it's also to increase in quality and higher throughput as well because of the repeatability of it. Uh, and one of the bigger factors here that we face in the U.S. particularly is in, you know, attracting enough people to industry to do the type of work because uh, manufacturing has long been stigmatized. And in some industries, you could argue correctly so that a lot of the work was what uh, is often referred to here in industry as the four Ds. And that is that the type of work was often dark, dirty, dull and dangerous. 
And so robots are taking over most of those types of work that people, you know, even historically didn't really want to do, but they kind of had to do sometimes <laughs> to maintain a living. Uh, so a lot of those types of jobs are what's being taken by uh, robotics and other types of automation mm. is type of jobs that people have historically not really wanted to do. And in, in some cases aren't really good for humans to do because of the repetitive, repetitive stress motion, and yeah. things of that nature. Yeah. yeah, David Greenfield, Editor-in-Chief of Automation World with us. Also joining us from MIT's Industrial Performance Center, Executive Director and Research Scientist at the IPC. He co-leads the work of the Future Initiative there, Ben Armstrong. Ben, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So let's let's talk about the idea of robots and job loss. It, this is not a, a, uh, a straight-line trade-off, is it? Well, for a long time, really since the 1960s, there's been concern in the United States about uh, automation and job loss. In the 1960s, it wasn't necessarily robots, but it was the early wave of computerization. Congress even uh, convened hearings, you know, worried even at a time of very low unemployment about uh, the displacement of workers due to advanced technology. And what we saw both in the, in the 1960s, but later in the 80s with the onset of uh, robotics in the automotive industry, as David mentioned, but also, you know, beginning around 2018, again, with concerns about robots and AI, that these fears have never really come to pass. So there have been a number of studies uh, in the United States, in France, in the Netherlands, in Finland, that tried to understand when a, when a manufacturer adopts robots or other automation technologies, what happens to their workforce? What kind of people do they hire? What type of people do they lay off? And what they find is that when firms uh, adopt robots or technologies like them, uh, they end up hiring more people, not fewer, partly because they become more productive, they're able to grow faster, and they have a, a higher need for, for labor overall. Now, the people that they hire are doing somewhat different tasks, right? They're not necessarily loading and unloading a machine or doing final assembly, if the robot's capable of doing that. But instead, they take on more cognitive tasks. They uh, think about how to improve the process. They might do more detailed quality checks uh, and the like. So, so really, you know, in, in, the, in the research, the focus is on what not what jobs the robot can do, since the robot can never do 100% of a job, but it's what tasks the robot can do. And oftentimes, it's a task that uh, a machine might do more reliably than a human human opening up the human to do tasks that really humans are are much better equipped to do than machines so so in general you know the the winners of of the last you know multiple decades of manufacturing have been the firms that have automated and even the workers working for those firms the challenge though with with US manufacturing is that we haven't had enough automation so uh, I, I don't want to paint a, a rosy picture of you know all boats rising, partly because robot adoption in the U.S. has been flat for, for the last de more than a decade. Robot adoption actually went down during the pandemic in 2020, when you might expect yeah. investments in automation Strange. to go up. So, so I do think there's an issue here that both technology adoption in U.S. factories has been flat, but also that U.S. productivity in manufacturing has actually gone down since since 2010. Well, so, why, so these are concerning trends. Why is this? Is it that the low-hanging fruit of automation has already taken place or um, labor costs haven't risen enough to really put the demand into next-generation automation? What's happening? 
I think there are a few factors. One is there's a backlash to companies that try to push too far in automation. So there are examples from the early 1980s when GM tried to coin the lights out factory, automating everything in sight. They realized they just couldn't do it. And, and they had some robots were affixing the wrong bumper to the wrong chassis. And they, 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 they had led to a lot of mistakes and they had to turn back the clock on automation and, and um, really evaluate what was appropriate to automate and not. Similarly with the Tesla Model 3 factory um, in more recent times. So there is, I think, some just technical challenges of integrating automation. And it, it ultimately is quite costly. It's, it's more costly to integrate um, automation into a factory floor typically than just to buy the robot itself. And then finally, there's the labor question. You know, manufacturing wages in the United States uh, have been flat for, for quite some time when adjusted for inflation. And there, there aren't the specific skills, kind of the automation engineering skills to really make uh, robots and other automated equipment work in practice. So these have been barriers to um, introducing more automation into uh, U.S. factories. We're talking with Ben Armstrong of MIT's Industrial Performance Center and David Greenfield, editor-in-chief of Automation World. If you have questions for them about automation and robots manufacturing or logistics or any of, of the different sectors of our economy where automation is is particularly attractive for cutting costs but doing quality work. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. David, I wanted to talk about logistics, particularly because here in Southern California, we have a huge logistics industry, uh, warehouses, um, interstate trucking that's based here, a dual port complex, which is massive. So you know, logistics is a huge, huge employer and economic driver here. David, what do you see as, as some of the areas in the coming decade where this is going to be a really noticeable difference with automation? Yeah, uh, you're correct. Uh, the, the automated storage and retrieval systems, uh, in particular in the distribution center, type of uh, facilities in the logistics industry, as well as just the general autonomous mobile robots uh, that are proliferating throughout industry, uh, you know, in the logistics side, as well as in manufacturing. And those just to clarify with the autonomous mobile robots, which are typically referred to as AMRs, what separates them from the automated guided vehicles that people tend to be more familiar with in the past that would roam around uh, factories or distribution centers is they followed uh, leads that were embedded into the floor of the factory. So they followed very defined paths throughout the distribution center or whatever manufacturing facilities they operated in. But these autonomous mobile robotics these systems use uh, different types of radars and sensors uh, that are outfitted on uh, the actual mobile robot themselves to autonomously navigate throughout a facility. You know, they're just told where to go and, you know, what will be put in them and, and then told where to go from there. And they make their way back because they've essentially mapped out, you know, the facility. They have that information uh, contained within their controllers. They know the facility and they the quickest and fastest ways back to or to where they need to go or where they need to return to. And they avoid any obstacles along the way. They slow down and stop when people cross their paths. 
So that's that's one area. And then these automated storage and retrieval systems, which uh, are proliferating a, a, across uh, global uses, even in the grocery areas. I think it was Ocado, the online uh, supermarket uh, uh, business in the UK. They developed a proprietary system of their own where these stacks of products can be up to 21 uh, containers high and mobile robots roam across the top, pulling from these automatically based on orders that are input. Mm. Um, and you see that with the automated storage and retrieval systems and distribution centers that can be a couple of stories high and these robotic systems go and do you know very you know highly accurate pick and place of picking items for uh fulfillment all right uh, we're almost out of time but i have a listener question i want to ask diane diana excuse me in loma linda was wondering about what certification and training is needed for people to repair automated components in these factories david yeah, that's actually one of the exciting things job-wise around this uh, point is that a lot of these types of jobs don't require your typical four-year engineering degrees that you would expect or have expected to work in that type of field in the past. There's quite a bit of training out there, often done at local community colleges uh, that has been growing over the past few years where you just need a year or two of training at a fairly low cost, and that sort of training is kind of exploding across industry. And unfortunately, as much as people like myself, you know, talk about it, it's it's not widely picked up uh, across uh, the media to let people know that these types of jobs are there and don't require, you know, large sums of money to obtain degrees or large amounts of time to uh, get them. And there's uh, there's a number of jobs into the tens of thousands that are open right now for these types of technicians to maintain and uh, repair, you know, a variety of automated equipment, not just robotics, but the controllers, the sensors, et cetera, that are wow. part of these automated systems. This is this is so great. I anticipated a segment where we'd be talking about job loss because of, of the rise of robots and automation, only to find out there are all these job opportunities, plus the reshoring of manufacturing that have been done elsewhere becomes it becomes more affordable to do it here with the assistance of automation and human workers alongside them. David Greenfield of Automation World, thank you so much. Ben Armstrong of MIT's Industrial Performance Center, thank you both for being with us. Absolutely fascinating. Coming up, it's Television Talk with our critics, but I want to take a moment to thank our outstanding AirTalk production team, the best in the business, our senior producer, Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, our producers are Lindsay Wright, Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, and Michael Goldsmith. Our apprentice news clerks are Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez, and our technical director, Evelyn Bocanegra. They are absolutely superb, talented, and dedicated all. Coming up, TV Talk. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. 
Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never request payment over the phone, mention specific bill amounts, demand to enter your home, or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Verify communications by calling customer service directly or viewing the latest fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. It's a song from the original soundtrack of the Netflix series Champion, which follows musician Bosco Champion and his sister Vita, who steps out of her brother's shadow to become a performer in her own right. That's one of the series our critics will be talking about on TV Talk, which comes your way every Thursday. Our critics this week are Danette Chavez of uh, Primetimer, where she's editor-in-chief, and Christina Escobar of latinamedia.co. Christina is the co-founder and TV critic of Latina Media. Let's start with what was seen at the Sundance Film Festival, where Christina was in attendance, and a couple of docu-series that are intended for television were shown. Uh, One of them, with three directors behind it, Richard Linklater, Liana Sosa and Alex Stapleton. God Save Texas is the docu-series. Christina, good to have you with us. Please tell us about it. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. Yeah, so God Save Texas is this docu-series based on a book exploring different facets of Texas. And I think it'll be a really interesting watch for Californians who may have um, some outsider perspectives about the state, about what it is really like to live in Texas and to be the recipient of some of those Texas policies, whether it's um, immigration and border um, issues or how we get our oil or the death penalty. Each of the episodes focuses on one of those things, and they're told from a filmmaker's perspectives who has a hometown stake in those particular areas. The episodes may veer on earnest, but they really do shed a light on important stuff that is happening in our country that we could better understand the human cost of what's going on. God Save Texas, the docu-series, screened at the Sundance Film Festival that's on right now. Uh, Christina, do we know where this might be shown? We don't yet. Um, That's part of the fun and challenge of Uh. watching stuff at festival at Sundance. Um, But it does seem like, you know, it could get picked up partly because it has those really big um, marquee names in terms of the directors behind it. So I'm hopeful that somebody will indeed pick it up and it'll reach a mass audience, whether that's on a streamer or on PBS, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Con Body versus Everybody, another docu-series screened at Sundance. Uh, Please tell us about it. Yeah, so this is a series that follows a man named Cas Marte, who was formerly incarcerated. And while he was in jail, he got himself in shape. He developed his own workout using um, body weight stuff he could do in solitary confinement. He then taught it to the other inmates. And when he went out, he started his own business doing that same type of workout, eventually growing to found a gym and employ all these other formerly incarcerated Folks in the documentary by Deborah Granick of Winter's Bone, again, another big name um, in the industry, follows him and the other people who work with him. And this 
is a beautiful and heart-wrenching tale, really powered by Cosmarte's charisma. You really believe and root for him. Um, and and the people who are part of his community and you see how they support him. I will say at Sundance, they brought Cosmarte out and he led a workout, which I did. <laughs> you did it, huh? Good. <laughs> I did. And I, I was happy at the end not to throw up. It was so, so hard. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'd had this sort of, and the documentary features plenty of the workouts as well. So it has that sort of fun mix of pushing yourself physically, but also a really important social justice issue that is just still continues to decimate black and brown communities. Con Body versus Everybody, the docu-series screening at the Sundance Film Festival, where Christina was in attendance. Uh, let's move on to a, a new series on the Mac streaming service, or I should say a, a, a series that's around. It's in its final third seasons. The Canadian com- comedic drama, sort of, starring uh, Bilal Beg, Amanda Cordner, and Gray Power. Um, uh, Bilal Bey, uh, uh, Fab Filippo are the co-creators of the series. Danette, what do you think of this final third season of Sort Of? You know, um, this has always been a different sort of uh, coming-of-age story, right? Um, Bilal Beg is a non-binary performer, and they play this messy millennial navigating several layers of their identity, not just being non-binary, but uh, being first-generation Pakistani-Canadian, being millennial at a time when, you know, um, we're still where we're constantly shifting what where the generational uh divide is um i wanted to talk about the show because i do really enjoy it it's warm and a little melancholy the protagonist is searching and also somebody who you kind of want to shake by the shoulder sometimes Uh, i think if you liked fleabag uh, you should definitely seek out sort of um but also you know just in terms of like a broader discussion this kind of character journey um for a while you know the, the this kind of story was debuting alongside you know big puzzle box shows and uh you know, uh, more crowd-pleasing escapist kind of comedies, right? Like your Ted Lasso's. But now dramedies like Sort Of and The Flight Attendant and Our Flag Means Death, which incidentally are all on mats, you know, they're essentially an, an endangered species. And it feels like we're eulogizing a mini era of programming. Um, and, you know, I don't want to let these shows go into the good night <laughs> without mm-hmm. uh, speaking up for them one more time. Uh, and there are three sh- seasons of the show waiting to be discovered right now on Max. Sort of is the series on Max in its third and final season. Of this third season, four of the episodes have released. Episodes five and six will be out on Thursday, February 3rd, and there'll be a total of eight episodes in the final season of Sort of. Champion is the Netflix series that I just mentioned earlier uh, about uh, musicians Bosco and Vida Champion. The series stars Deja J. Bowens and Malcolm Camuletti. Uh, Candace Carty-Williams is the creator of Champion. Danette, what do you think of the series? Um, it It's unfortunately one of those shows that arrived just um, at, at the start of the year, when, you know, everybody was probably still thinking about the best of last year's shows and also the Emmys. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's another part of uh, our, our TV history. The last time I was on, I was talking about soap opera rhythms and the importance of remembering that. And Champion is very much a primetime soap, um, just 
it's just streaming on Netflix. Uh, it's a worthy successor to a show like Lee Daniels's Empire, uh, which you know uh, really helped uh, Taraji P. Henson reach like a new level of the stratosphere. Um, it's got lots of sibling rivalry, glamour, parents withholding their love, a lot of musical interludes. It is, um, those are some of the most dynamic scenes in the show. Um, they feature, you know, the show features like grime uh, artists. Um, uh, Malcolm is uh, an alum of Top Boy, um, which also, you know, which also features some grime performers. Um, but, you know, I, I compared it to Empire. And Empire is a show that at one point had a threesome with a ghost. <laughs> There were two characters that had a, a threesome with the ghost of one of uh, the characters' dead wife. Um, and that show looks restrained compared to um, it. I don't recommend binging it. Uh, I think you're better off watching it one episode a night because like a primetime soap, um, it just packs so much. Uh, Candace Cardi Williams is the author of Queenie, um, which had like another, you know, great... Um, young woman protagonist. I think uh, Deja does a great job as Vida. She's, you know, very much someone who's been toiling in obscurity and she makes the most of her time in the spotlight mm -hmm. and it ends on a pretty big cliffhanger. Uh, so I will not be surprised if we get another season of it. But again, I recommend pacing yourself. It started airing on BBC One in the UK uh, the summer of last year. Netflix bought the rights uh, to see it outside the UK and Ireland. So here in the States, we get a chance to see Champion, uh, the British musical drama series on Netflix. All eight episodes are now streaming. When we come back, we'll hear about the Hulu series Death and Other Details and The Woman in the Wall. It's uh, Air Talk and our TV Talk segment we do every Thursday here on LAist 89.3. Back in a minute. Death and Other Details on Hulu, that's the uh, theme for the series, which stars Violet Bean and Mandy Patinkin. Heidi Cole McAdams and Mike Weiss are the creators. Christina, please give us just a, a brief uh, look at Death and Other Details on Hulu. Yes, so it's a Hulu murder mystery, as you may guess from the title. And if you're thinking, didn't I just watch, you know, A Murder at the End of the World, which is another Hulu murder mystery centered on, uh, you know, a beautiful young white woman who's somehow in the center and sleuthing it all out? Yes. Um, but I would say the two shows have really different vibes. Um, in this one, you have a lot of humor. You have a lot of camp. There are over-the-top silly accents, a lot of beautiful, intricate, impractical clothes and globe trotting and set pieces, um, which actually make for a pretty fun show. Um, and I think part of the reason why is that casting of Mandy Patinkin, for those who have been following him for a long time, he's able to sort of bring this heart to characters that might otherwise be prickly. Um, but his ability to play someone with a strong moral center really shines in this show, which is a 
fun kind of caper murder mystery boat voyage type show that is just sort of a joy to watch in terms of beautiful performances and stunning visuals and a plot that clips nicely along. They are releasing it weekly and I would suggest watching it that way because as much fun as the world is to vision to visit, you can certainly uh, max out on its cuteness sometimes. But once a week, it's perfect. We're talking about the mystery, death, and other details. It's streaming on Hulu. Uh, there are three episodes out currently, with the fourth to be released next Tuesday. There'll be a total of ten episodes of the series. Christina Escobar with us from latinamedia.co and Danette Chavez of Prime Timer. There are TV critics today. Danette, please tell us about uh, the Paramount Plus and Showtime thriller, The Woman in the Wall. Well, just like the Netflix series, Dairy Girls taught viewers about the troubles in Ireland. This is a show that also entertains as it enlightens uh, the audience about another dark chapter in Irish history. Uh, this one lasted for centuries. Um, the Magdalene laundries or asylums were a kind of juvenile detention center for young women who became pregnant or, you know, maybe the term, the, the um, euphemism for it back then would have been, you know, wayward in trouble. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't sit it, 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 it doesn't get like mired in that history. Uh, it's more interested in exploring um, the, the, the impact on both the young women who gave birth to children they never saw again, and also the children who were placed into homes, you know, not, not knowing much about their family history. Um, it stars Ruth Wilson and Daryl McCormick, and they're both such magnetic performance, uh, performers, excuse me, um, they, and they bring very different energies to the show. Ruth Wilson is someone who, like, whenever you hear she's cast in something, you know you want to watch it, whether it's His Dark Materials, The Affair, Luther, and she brings this real live wire energy as a mother who is really prepared to do anything to find out what happened to the child she was forced to give up. And Daryl McCormick, who, you know, is probably more, people are probably more familiar with his work in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, um, just very charismatic. And, you know, he has to kind of uh, muffle that here. You know, he's still very soulful, but, you know, he, he is playing someone who, um, who is uh, trying to solve a mystery of his own and his story intersects with uh, Ruth Wilson's the character of Lorna and um, it's on a weekly release again something that you want to take your time with it's kind of funny that we end that that emerged as a theme um, but you know like I, I do think appointment television is coming back anyway, right? So we might as well get used to it. We're talking about The Woman in the Wall, which uh, releases a new episode every Friday on Paramount+. Plus. Tomorrow it's going to be the second episode in the six-episode series. It also airs Sunday nights on Showtime Network, The Woman in the Wall. And, Christina, I know you recently gave a TEDx talk titled Actually Everyone's Not a Critic and Why It Matters. We have just a couple minutes for you to share with us what you spoke about. Yeah, thank you so much, Larry. So I think in savvy audiences, there's a growing awareness of the need for the folks who are in front of the camera and behind the camera of the stuff we watch to match our actual population. But one thing I've noticed is that there hasn't been 
broadly, that same level of awareness on the need for critical bodies to also match our general population. And well, listeners to this show may, because you do such a good job curating a diverse and interesting list of critics may not know that for the general reader checking Rotten Tomatoes, white guys write two thirds of movie reviews despite making up 30% of the population. While way on the other side, black women, Asian women, indigenous women, and Latina women together write just 4% of movie reviews, despite making up 20% of the population and buying more movie tickets. So there's a disparity there. And the reason why I wanted to give the TEDx talk on it was to raise awareness of that fact, but also to push people to understand the ways that what we read and reading a lifetime of that disproportionate perspective affects us, that it shapes our ideas of quality and whose voices matter and whose stories matter, and then to give them a toolbox about what we can do about it, right? Like as audience members, as consumers, as people who read reviews and care about movies and television, that we have some power in the marketplace. And so in the talk, I guide folks on how to make a difference and how to um, help push our critical conversation forward so that we can have a world that's, you know, for everybody. Christina, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I'm going to have to go online and, and watch the talk that you gave. Sounds sounds important. Thank you. And you're the perfect person to, to share that message. We love having you as a part of our TV talk on AirTalk. Same to you, Danette Chavez. Thank you both for being with us. Danette's editor-in-chief of Primetimer, Christina Escobar, co-founder of latinamedia.co. Stay tuned. Coming up next, it's Here and Now from NPR. Tomorrow at 9 o'clock, Austin Cross, as he does every Friday, will be hosting Air Talk. And then I'll be with you at 10 o'clock for Film Week. We'll hear what our critics have to say about the greatest night in pop, a look at the making of uh, We Are the World. What an incredible story of the making of that song. Also, uh, movie starring Daisy Ridley, Sometimes I Think About Dying, and uh, film, uh, Tunisian film, Under the Fig Trees. That's all coming up tomorrow at 10 on Film Week. Have a great day. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to Relate podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.